attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and around here, what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But right now, I've been working my way through a series called This Is The End. You remember all those comics from the 90s where the main hero got killed, paralyzed, incapacitated, or otherwise chased out of his job in favor of someone else? And weren't those comics awesome? I sure think so. And here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, what I believe is the definition of what is. And so today's focus is falling upon Green Lantern, Emerald Twilight. Now, in previous episodes, I've talked about Doomsday, Nightfall, and Terminal Velocity. And it seems only logical to want to talk about Emerald Twilight as well, but unlike those other stories, there's a little bit of a... I almost feel like the -the behind-the-scenes story of what went on with Emerald Twilight is at least as interesting as anything that's printed on the page. Basically, though, the way that I've heard it is as follows. Gerard Jones scripted... I'm assuming he plotted an outline, but he scripted for sure Green Lantern issue number 48, which was to be the first issue of a story called Emerald Twilight that had a very different premise. Basically, the idea was, as I understood it, there were supposed to be apparently two different sets of Guardians, and it was up to Hal Jordan to figure out which team of Guardians are the real Guardians, and which one is the fake bunch of Guardians. So... It was apparently decided by somebody that that the uh, Gerard Jones version of Emerald Twilight just really wasn't all that interesting. Or at least not interesting enough to entice new readers, which, lest we forget, was kind of the entire point of this process. And just speaking only for myself, it sounds a little bit derivative of what went on with Reign of the Superman, but... Who's to say? As it happens, though, Mike Carlin, Archie Goodwin, and Denny O'Neill, along with Green Lantern editor Kevin Dooley, apparently plotted out the Emerald Twilight story that eventually saw print, uh, print, and this was assigned to newcomer Ron Mars. And the basic idea of it is, really, it's not so much about 
as I've gotten older, what I've come to understand is that Emerald Twilight as a story is not really about goings-on with Hal Jordan. It's basically a setup for Kyle Rayner to replace Hal Jordan, not just as a Green Lantern, but the Green Lantern. And so there's a sense in which goings-on with Emerald Twilight are kind of beside the point because it's all designed to to position Kyle to take over the the uh, Green Lantern monthly title. And so it almost feels like analyzing the story beyond that point is kind of superfluous. And that would probably be my position, you know, my opinion even now. But one of the things that happened was not all that long ago, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, really, it was like five or six years ago. But to me, it, didn't, it doesn't feel like it was all that long ago. But not all that long ago, I... I sat down and actually read from beginning to end the Jeff Johns run on Green Lantern as it was at the time. I mean, basically, that took me through to the basically to the end of the old DC universe just before the launch of the new 52. And so basically started off with a Green Lantern Rebirth and then worked my way through uh, what was Green Lantern number one up to uh, goings on, you know, at that time, you know, goings on with brightest day and all and all of the uh, green the green lantern family of comics and i must say that was one of the best runs on any comic book that i've ever read which oddly enough kind of gave me cause to i don't know reevaluate emerald twilight and just kind of see how well this story really works and honestly emerald twilight like i say as a story is it's designed to clear the decks for Kyle Rayner so that he can be, well, I, I said just a moment ago, the Green Lantern, but really the only the, the only person in the entire DC universe who's wielding any kind of a ring of power. And so what that entailed was that even characters like Guy Gardner and Alan Scott were going to have to give up their rings just so Kyle Rayner would be more unique, I suppose, in the DC universe. And... As I say, I mean, I still somewhat believe that to be true, even now. But what's really interesting is the uh, the Green Lantern Rebirth series. If Emerald Twilight was intended to clear the decks for Kyle Rayner, Emerald Twilight was designed to rehabilitate... Not Emerald Twilight, I'm sorry. Green Lantern Rebirth was designed to rehabilitate Hal Jordan. And... Honestly, I'm on record now for saying that I don't really buy a lot of that. Uh, I had a uh, an episode with uh, Sean Angle uh, way back like March of 2014. This was episode number 34 of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, where he and I talked at length about Green Lantern Rebirth. And I'm, I'm not going to bore you with everything that I said in that episode, but suffice it to say, I... There are parts of Green Lantern Rebirth that I have trouble accepting even now. But again, it's kind of a means to an end. They, DC editorial basically needed to get Hal Jordan back in action as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so as with Emerald Twilight, it feels almost like analyzing the story a whole lot is kind of missing the forest for the trees. But fuck it. At least as far as Emerald Twilight uh, is concerned, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Anyway, and basically, um, well, actually, first what I'm going to do is just kind of give you the, the full summary and a little bit of history. 
In Green Lantern number 46, which was part of the reign of the Superman storyline, the extraterrestrial villain Mongol teams up with the cyborg Superman that had been passing himself off as the real Superman. They use a series of bombs to destroy Hal Jordan's home city of Coast City with the intention of using that same area as one of four way stations for a giant engine that would ultimately transform Earth into the massive spaceship War World. Hal Jordan returns to the city to find a massive fortress engine standing in the ruins of his, uh, of his home and then furiously goes on the attack, hearing the voices of those killed crying out in his mind. The voices fall silent when Jordan defeats Mongol in battle. Hal also witnesses the return of Superman, who's defeated the cyborg elsewhere in the city, but that's kind of tangential to the story we're talking about here. In issue number 47... Hal teams up with Green Arrow for a completely different mission, and at the end of the issue, his thoughts once again turn to Coast City. Issue number 48 begins with Hal in the center of what used to be Coast City, clutching the remains of a doll, the only physical evidence of the seven million people who once lived there. In a moment of pure anguish, Hal uses his power ring to recreate Coast City, down to the people who had previously died, including his father. When his ring's energy runs out, one of the guardians of the universe contacts him via holographic projection and tells him that he's in violation of one of the principal rules of the Green Lantern Corps, which forbids lanterns from using their rings for personal gain. So pissed off that he can't even see straight, Hal siphons off uh, energy from the projection and makes his way to the guardian's planet Oa with the intent of bleeding off all the energy from the main power battery in order to permanently recreate Coast City. Issue number 49 sees Hal going up against various members of the Green Lantern Corps, each of whom fall against Hal until he arrives at Oa. Hal steals the ring from each defeated Green Lantern and then leaves him, leaves him behind for dead. Issue number 50 sees Hal battle the renegade former Green Lantern Sinestro right there on Oa, who'd previously been imprisoned in the main battery, but he ends up getting released by the Guardians as a last-ditch effort to stop Hal Jordan. Jordan kills Sinestro, as well as his fellow Green Lantern, Kilowog. The Guardians, having realized that their cause was lost, <clears throat> had given all their remaining energy to the, to the Guardian named Ganthet, who becomes the sole Guardian after this energy transference resulted in the, results in the death of all the rest of the Guardians. Hal then takes all the energy in the central power battery, and when he emerges from it, he has a new costume and takes on the name Parallax. Ganthet then travels to Earth and finds an illustrator named Kyle Rayner, who had actually been briefly introduced at the end of issue number 48 when he saw Hal fly off and mistook his, uh, the green flight streak for a shooting star. Ganthet gives Kyle the last remaining power ring, thus making Kyle the last Green Lantern, which is pretty much the end. Now, there is kind of a follow-up story to all this called Emerald Twilight, which took place uh, in a Guy Gardner Warrior from issues number 18 to 21. And it basically sees Parallax, as he's known at this point, pretty much decimate the entire Justice League and a couple of other characters too. I forget his name. One of the Dark Stars shows up. And also, I guess for continuity's sake, there's also Alan Scott. He's along for the ride too. And Parallax pretty much beats the hell out of all of them. But again, that's somewhat tangential to this story. But as it goes for Green Lantern number 48, 
this is not only uh, Ron Mars's debut on a green on a Green Lantern, but it also marks the beginning. I, I think this run was actually pretty short lived, but uh, Bill Willingham uh, is also the uh, he's the uh, the uh, penciler of this of this issue, Green Lantern number forty eight. And in fact, I, you know what? Now that I think about it, I think I think each issue, each chapter of Emerald Twilight has a different uh, penciler because I don't think Daryl Banks actually showed up to issue number fifty. So. Hmm. But anyway, um, basically what you've got here in issue number 48, it's Hal basically wandering around. I can't even say the ruins of Coast City. I mean, there's just, there's really nothing left. There's just a smoking crater. And I don't know why, but this, uh, this splash on pages two and three, it's a two page splash. It's just an incredibly powerful image. There's this huge smoking crater in the ground, and all you can see is uh, Hal Jordan sitting off to one side and just the thoughts that must be going through his mind right now. And I pretty much already touched upon a lot of what happens in issue number 48, where Hal basically recreates the entire uh, the, the entirety of of uh, coast city including his father and i don't know i mean it's just it plays rather heavily into i guess hal as a character what little there was at this point and there's this really heartbreaking moment where hal has a conversation with it's not even his father it's it's basically just a it's a ring construct version of the way Hal sees his father. And he does nothing but criticize Hal, second guess him, doubt him, question him. And it's, it's just really sad is really what it is really what it comes down to. And as, as the issue progresses, you know, one of the things that the reader, honestly, you just can't help feeling is, Everything Hal's doing is completely relatable. I mean, his his city's been destroyed, and he's he's affected by that. I mean, how could he not be? And so, out of nowhere, you know, here comes uh, here comes uh, one of the guardians, basically saying, "Get your ass back to Oa so that you can face charges for uh, you know for what you've done. You're going to face disciplinary action for this." And, you know, they can't even give the guy a break. And that's ultimately what causes Hal to snap. In his moment of need, the Guardians can't even say, <clears throat> you know what, we understand. We're going to let this slide. You know, he can't even get that. And so in that moment, he just kind of loses it. And he he heads off through the stars for vengeance. And I got to tell you, you know, I mean, the first time I read this, I was a kid and, you know, there's an entire perspective of life that I'm sorry, kids just don't have, but it didn't really take a lot of imagination to understand exactly where Hal was coming from, that his family's gone 
his friends are probably dead. His city has been destroyed. And uh, what whatever family he has remaining, from the sounds of it, they're sort of incommunicado. They're just estranged from one another. I mean, Hal literally has nothing. Nothing to fall back on. And it's just... It's just sad. It's it's really sad. So that is basically the end of issue number 48, which actually, I, t- I guess technically it ends with the first appearance of Kyle Rayner, but again, that's a little bit tangential to what we're talking about in this episode. From there, Green Lantern number 49 is primarily a slugfest. It's how versus pretty much the entire fucking Green Lantern Corps. And... You know, in the years since this story took place, one of the things that other writers have tried to drive home is that Hal Jordan is, was, and will always be a major league badass. And it... I mean, of all, of all characters, of all Green Lanterns, he's probably the only, the only Lantern who can take on the entire core. And that is driven home very clearly in this issue. And, you know, Hal makes his, he pretty much makes his way through a lot of, uh, a lot of very familiar Green Lanterns. But uh, there are also some, I guess, at least to me, less familiar ones. I mean, everybody knows Tomar too. Goings on there. And I personally, I've always had uh, a real soft spot for a, a Jack T. Chance. But, you know, not everybody is quite as familiar. So... Anyhow, uh, it's just page after page of Hal beating the holy shit out of a lot of people, not least of which is Boudica, whose hand he cuts off with a uh, light construct chainsaw from the looks of it and steals her ring. And that's something else. As he goes along, he's taking each lantern's ring. And it should be emphasized that, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't empower Hal, but it, what it does do is it, 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 it gives him a psychological edge, you know? He he feels more powerful with each of these rings. But the other thing it does, apart from, you know, giving him sort of a, a psychological leg up, a sort of an, an imaginary advantage over his opponents, it also immobilizes the other lanterns to keep them from, uh, you know, recuperating and then catching up with them later. So basically the issue ends with how Jordan beating the shit out of Kilowog and calling the Guardians out, they in turn basically unleash their failsafe, which is Sinestro. And you kind of got to figure things have got to be pretty fucking desperate if they're calling, if they're reactivating Sinestro's commission as a Green Lantern officer. So that's pretty big. And that pretty much is the end of issue number 49, which leads us into issue number 50, which is pretty much just another slugfest. But before I get into that, there, because we were, you know, four alarm, four, uh, just fully immersed now in the 90s, the cover of Green Lantern number 50, the the, uh, collector's edition, it was actually a glow-in-the-dark cover. Now... I'll be honest with you, when I bought this comic when I was a kid, even I kind of thought that, you know, the idea of a glow-in-the-dark cover, 
it just didn't really compare with what other enhanced covers there were on the market at the time. I mean, you had foil covers, 3D covers, uh, color forms covers. I mean, there were just tons of cover, uh, specialized covers that a lot of, you know, special collector edition uh, comics had at that time. And <clears throat> I don't know. It just felt like this was a little bit weak sauce to me, you know, a, uh, a glow-in-the-dark cover. I mean, it's almost like, who gives a shit? But whatever. That's that's what happened. So anyway, the issue is pretty much a slugfest between Hal Jordan and uh, Sinestro. Now, I was, at best, only vaguely familiar with Hal Jordan. I, for sure, wasn't really all that uh, familiar pretty much at all with Sinestro when this issue came out. So I didn't really get the full import of the grudge match that was going on here. But I did kind of like the idea of a superhero he's, who's able to have like a real physical battle with his, with his arch enemy, you know, his worst enemy. And as much as I loved Superman then and now, traditionally Superman really can't have a physical showdown with Lex Luthor. I mean... Most of the time, that's just not possible. And I would say it's not even really desirable. But I did appreciate that here. And so, as I say, the full import of their their little grudge match here, I understood that it was important, but I didn't get the full, I guess, context of it. In that I wasn't overly familiar with Sinestro. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but... Uh, basically, my interest in Green Lantern at this time it was actually mostly in Guy Gardner. Then as now, I love Guy. I think he's funny. I think he's he's the sort of macho, tough guy. I would say borderline caricature. That he to me, Guy Gardner is just an extremely easy character to enjoy and get into because you know, with a character like Guy, there's really no bullshit. I mean, you know, this. Green Lantern title, this is issue number 50, but issue number one, I think, started off with Hal going through some kind of imaginary bullshit identity crisis, you know, who am I, kind of a thing, and as a 10 or 11-year-old, I didn't really care very much about Hal Jordan's existential crisis. It was always easier for me to relate to Guy Gardner, because of all people, Guy is just not going to question himself, he's not going to you know, reflect soberly on his life and wonder if it was all worth it. Guy Gardner is a sort of obnoxious version of James T. Kirk. I mean, he's the guy that goes out there, kicks ass, and gets the job done. Now, he may not always abide by all the stupid fucking little rules and everything, but he gets the job done, and that counts for a lot. So that's always just been kind of my impression of of Guy Gardner. So... All of this is kind of a long way of saying that this whole big showdown with Sinestro that Hal Jordan's having, I understood it on an intellectual level, but I wasn't necessarily emotionally invested in it. To me, it was just facts. This was all building up to the real guy, which is to say Kyle Rayner, taking over at the end of the story. And to me, everything that we're doing here is a means of getting to that end. So that's basically the way that I looked at it. Now, that having been said, Daryl Banks did an incredible job of drawing this uh, drawing this issue. I mean, they, the panel layouts and the storytelling are just crystal clear. But the other thing is that there are some really good 
just powerful artistic flourishes. Uh, for example, on page 14, the first panel, you've got Hal Jordan socking Sinestro in the gut. And I mean like bare knuckles boxer style. And it's just the expression that Sinestro's making. You know, I mean, he's getting it right on the butt and you can just... You can almost see the air just rushing out of his lungs because of how hard he's been hit. So, and and that actually leads into something else. I mean, this fight, it, it starts off with them, you know, using their rings against each other. <clears throat> and they're conjuring, you know, this this huge gun and that explosion and all of these, these other things. But when it ends, I mean, it's just them, you know, punching, kicking, and biting each other. And... I don't know why, but for some reason, I always figured that any final showdown that ever occurs between Hal Jordan and Sinestro, it's not going to be, you know, who can conjure the most scary light construct. It's going to be who can bare knuckle box the other one to death. You know, who can do that first? That's the question. And the question seems to get settled here because uh, at the bottom of page 15, Hal wrestles Sinestro into a chokehold and then uh, breaks his neck. <clears throat> of course, later we find out it's not quite that simple. This was actually a construct. But at the time, we were to assume that this was the real Sinestro that Hal just killed. And at the top of uh, page 17, you can see the Guardians pretty much shitting themselves that, wow, Hal just took out literally the entire fucking core and also the best, if rogue, most rogue Green Lantern that we've got. So, yeah, we're we're pretty much fucked here. What, like proper fucked? Yes, proper fucked. Before the Germans get here. Anyway, so... It's not going to be quite that easy for Hal. Um, he basically gets ambushed by Kilowog. And this is the one time in the entire story that Hal, show, Hal shows any kind of real... I shouldn't say remorse, but this is it, hesitation, maybe. He doesn't want to kill Ki uh, Kilowog. I mean, this isn't exactly his idea of fun. Now, there comes a point when he does it, and you get the idea it's because he feels he has to. There is no other choice, but this this is not what he wanted to do when he woke up this morning, put it that way. So, anyway... So from there, Hal pretty much has it out with the Guardians. And rather than a physical altercation, this is more, this is, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a, an intellectual debate, but basically you've got the, the Guardians acting like stuffy bureaucratic assholes, which I guess is fitting because fucking they are stuffy bureaucratic assholes. And then Hal basically having... I mean, at this point, Hal's gone. I mean, I don't know as I'd go so far as to call him completely insane throughout this whole story. I mean, I could definitely see temporary insanity, but by the time he finally makes it up to uh, the Guardian's headquarters, he's at the end of his rope. He knows what he's done. He's not happy, per se, that he's done it, but he's well aware of what he's done. He doesn't. He wishes it could have been otherwise, but he doesn't see any other way to get what he wants. And so, from there, he vanishes inside of the central power battery, and the Guardians decide, you know what? 
it cannot end here. This cannot be the end of our story. This cannot be the end of the Green Lantern Corps. And so they, as I said in the summary, they basically instill all of their power into Ganthet. And he, in turn, pours all of that power into one of the power rings and then rushes back to Earth to hand it over to Kyle Rayner. Now, this is honestly, this is one of those parts of the story that you've just got to accept. All right. And the reason I find this a little bit hard to believe is that Hal Jordan, a human, pretty much destroyed the entire Green Lantern Corps and destroyed the central power battery. And the act of doing all of this caused all of the Guardians to basically kill themselves so that they could give all of their power to just one so that the Guardians can continue and the Green Lantern Corps can continue. And so all of that stuff, fine, I'm on board with. What I do kind of struggle with, though, is the rationale of Ganthet deciding only a human can be the last remaining Green Lantern and hauling balls back to Earth to pick Kyle Rayner, literally at random, to pick up where Hal Jordan basically is leaving off and becoming the sole remaining Green Lantern. And look, it's one of those things you have to buy into that because that's the central premise of the story. But when you think about all of the decisions, or I should say all of the options that are available to Ganthet in terms of giving the ring to, you know, going to any other planet anywhere in the universe and giving the ring to literally anybody else, the fact that his first instinct was to turn back to Earth. I don't know. I find that a little... A little hinky, but whatever. Again, it's the central premise of this story, and so if you don't accept that, you pretty much don't have a story, so I go with it. And then that leads us to the very last page, which is to say page number 32, where Kyle puts on the ring for the first time, and we see him wearing the traditional version of the Green Lantern outfit. Now, that wouldn't last very long, but he does wear it for a short, a short period of time. And that's pretty much the end of Emerald Twilight as a story. And as I say, I mean, I guess I can accept it on the grounds that DC's objective was basically to, to bring new readers over to Green Lantern and show that this character, you know, cool things, big things can happen with with Green Lantern. And and when you think about what DC was up against in um let's see what is this? This is March of 1994. When you think about what they were up against with Spider-Man, the X-Men, I think the Avengers, I don't know if they were such a huge seller at this time, but I think they had some attention on them. Goings on at Image you know, what was Spawn and Youngblood and whatever the fuck Jim Lee was writing or trying to write at that time. And then also, lest we forget, goings on at DC itself, which by that point included Batman and 
uh, Superman, they both had these huge mythos challenging types of stories. It's easy to see what what DC's objective was here, you know, because they were up against some very fucking stiff competition. I mean, it's easy to forget now, but guys, there was a time when, you know, it wasn't the big two anymore of DC and Marvel. It was the big three. It was DC, Marvel, and Image. And even in the 90s, you had to do what whatever you had to do in order to stand out in the marketplace of ideas and show that, you know what, badass things happen in my comic book too. So check it out. And so I, I guess I can understand all of that. And anyway, my, this, is, this is all a really long way of saying I, I'm well aware of the fact that there's a bandwagon that they're jumping on board here. I simply don't hold it against them. Now, I solicited uh, feedback, or actually not even feedback. I solicited feed forward on uh, this episode. I basically posted on the Facebook group for Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. Hey, guys, send me an email or post a message or, uh, here on Facebook or just, you know, fucking whatever it is. And let me know what you think about uh, Emerald Twilight. You know, uh, what are your thoughts on it? You know, and the idea was that I would read everything that I received in this episode. So that is going to be pretty much next on, next on the, uh, you know, the agenda here. Um, And it's not going to take all that long either because I only received one email. This is from my friend, Mary Cohen. This was dated October the 11th. The title appropriately enough is Emerald Twilight. And she is the only one who actually responded in time for me to, uh, you know, read, you know, read her email here in this episode. Now, I, just full disclosure, I may get other emails in the days to come. And so I'll have to read those in future episodes. So if you sent something in after this, well, guys, I'm sorry, but I needed to get this episode recorded as quickly as I could. So put a pencil to it. Anyway, this is Mary. And she writes... When I got into reading DC Comics, Kyle Rayner had been Green Lantern for some time. It was some time before I read Emerald Twilight itself, but I admired its role in creating the bittersweet DCU I read in high school. I saw a Hal who was a foil to Superman, so close to rivaling his legend, but one bad day changed all of that. You know, I'm gonna, Mary, I'm gonna put your email on a on pause here and just say, you know what? That's actually an angle to Hal's character that I, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I'd never really considered before this idea that he and Superman were sort of peers with one another in as much as they were both, I guess, legends in the DC universe icons. And there's maybe an argument then that, at least to the citizens of the DCU, Hal Jordan might have been every he might have been every bit as legendary as Superman, except for the goings on with Emerald Twilight. You know, I, I kind of like that idea. You know, I I think that I think that concept has got a lot of disco potential to it because certainly when when Hal comes back under Jeff Johns's reign. I dare say that the events of Emerald Twilight, look, people can like or not like the fact that Hal was brought back from the dead and then 
basically rehabilitated so that he could be Green Lantern again. People can like that or not like that as they see fit. But one thing you kind of have to acknowledge is Jeff Johns did not sweep Emerald Twilight under the rug. He did not act as though this didn't happen. And there is a lot of disgrace and a lot of notoriety that goes along with being Hal Jordan, I guess, post-rebirth, you know, post-Green Lantern rebirth. And the other Lanterns aren't necessarily willing to forgive and forget quite so easily exactly what it was that went on. Now, yeah, Jeff Johns did, he did go out of his way to excuse Hal in, in as much as he was possessed by Parallax. So rather than operating of his own free will, he was actually being controlled and influenced by Parallax. But either way, Hal, Hal's reputation has definitely taken a hit. And because of that, like you say, uh, the people of the DC universe are never going to regard Hal Jordan in the same breath as Superman. Maybe once upon a time they would have. Now they won't. And Mary, uh, uh, props to you, man, because I truly never would have thought about this. But that's that's a really that's a really neat angle, and I like that. Like it a lot, in fact. Anyway. Get back into Mary's email, though. She writes, I was well aware of the criticism that it was a sudden shift, that Hal had already dealt with the loss of Coast City and editorial had screwed him over with a Poochie-type character. I'm going to put your email back on pause and say, you know, I've got very little recollection of the post-Reign of the Superman pre-Emerald Twilight Green Lantern. So if you're saying that or if, or rather, you're not saying this, but if other people are saying that, you know, these are issues and problems and whatnot that Hal's already dealt with or should have already dealt with, I guess I'll ride with that. But I don't know. I mean, well, fuck it. I, you're gonna. I'm just gonna let you say it. Get back into. Um, get back into Mary's email. She writes, but I had my own interpretation. Hal kept things in, and it led to his going gray early, which, by the way, I agree with. And he had little time to deal with the loss of Coast City in the midst of crisis after crisis. Eventually, the post-traumatic stress hit him hard, and he cracked. Perhaps Oliver Queen inspired him here. I'm going to come back to that, actually, in just a minute. But to to deal with your post-traumatic stress thing, you know what? I find that actually very easy to... Now, I'm not saying I subscribe to that completely myself, but yeah, I do find that to be a pretty a pretty viable explanation for why it is that Hal seemed apparently okay in one issue. But then in the next issue, it, it's like the damn done broketh. And it's all blood and murder and carnage after that. And... Yeah, post-traumatic stress. I could, I could see that because, to my understanding, that's the sort of a that's kind of a cumulative type of effect. You don't, you don't necessarily get shattered by that immediately. It may take a day or a week or a month or a year or a decade or however long, but that will eventually catch up with you. And especially a guy like Hal, who has a tendency to internalize everything. I could see that eventually turning against him. Now, again, we're supposed to believe, Mary, that 
this was all the doings of Parallax, and Hal really isn't morally responsible for anything of what happened. And if your objective is to, I don't know, redeem and rehabilitate Hal Jordan, you pretty much have to, you pretty much have to do things that way. So I'm fine with it. But as you say, if you look at this from the point of view of a sort of fallen, shamed predecessor, then yeah, it's easy to, it's easy to surmise that the weight of all of this was just too much. And after a while, Hal just snapped. Now, excuse me while I take a sip off my Coke here. I'm also going to take a drag off my e-cig, so again, bear with me. And of course, now the thing runs out of friggin' batteries, so how's that for bad luck? All right. Well, I know this is just riveting podcasting to listen to, so I'm going to just talk and vamp for time while I replace the battery with a different one. But anyway, all of this, Mary, is, is basically my way of saying, you know what? You actually, you really do raise a lot of good points here. And um, I mean, again, you know, Jeff Johns would have us believe something else, but I I think that what you're saying has got a lot of, it's got a lot of credibility to it. And, well, whatever. Anyway, get back into Mary's email, though. She writes, Perhaps Oliver Queen inspired him here. In Green Arrow, number 89, from 1994, Ollie was talked into helping destroy an evacuated gun factory. At first, he balks at that, because, but eventually comes back to fire the detonating arrow. I don't believe the ramifications of this story were ever shown. And it was certainly retconned by Infinite Crisis, if not Zero Hour. But here was a former JLA member taking a more active stance and trying to save lives. Perhaps Hal admired that sort of boldness and decided he should use power, or his power, in a similar way. And so began Emerald Twilight. And honestly, I never read that issue of Green Arrow, so I'll just take your word for that. But... Yeah, it wouldn't be at all unusual for Hal to be influenced in some way or another by Green Arrow, so certainly I could believe that. Anyway, Mary writes, In the years since, I've become more ambivalent about tearing down heroes. I still think the fall of Hal Jordan is a great story, especially in the context of the wider DCU, but as much as I like Kyle, I think it would probably have been better to go the way the Justice League cartoon did. Not necessarily with Jon Stewart, whose history was very different in the comics, but the rookie with disgraced predecessor bleh, rookie with disgraced predecessor angle might have worked be- might have worked even better if you had Tom Kalmaku or Alex DeWitt as the new GL instead. Can't wait to listen to the new show. Signed, Mary. And so Mary, thank you for being the first and at least at the twenty-four hour mark here, so far only person who's written in now again if any of you are planning to send stuff in in the future i'll have to read those in future episodes so my apologies the most i could give you in this was 24 hours and so sorry anyway but uh mary thank you very much appreciate you taking the time to write in and you know what this is 
certainly an angle that I hadn't, th- that I hadn't thought about. I personally gravitate toward the idea of, of uh, Kyle Rayner over Tom Kamaku or Alex DeWitt. But certainly I, I can't really, I can't fault your logic, put it that way. I mean, I, I think that would have been an interesting direction to go. I, I'm just saying I like better the direction that they took. So you can read into that um, as much as you want, but just please don't take this as me slamming on you or anything like that. And by the way, Mary, since I've got your ear, or I may have your ear, I'm not sure if you'll be listening to this episode, but if you do, um, I would like to hear your thoughts on anarchy and you know his appearance and arrow you know what works for you what doesn't work for you what do you love what do you hate you know i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that so uh, feel free to to let me know what you think obviously you've got the email address but just in case you don't trennis magnus at gmail.com just let me know what you think about that so anyway to uh i guess to sort of round off this part of the discussion though in the main i it's kind of hard to shake this perception of Emerald Dawn as being sort of a device to get, basically to replace Hal Jordan with somebody else. The act of doing so, though, seems like it really pissed off an entire segment of the fan base because this served as the catalyst for the formation of HEAT, which is Hal's Emerald Enforcement Team, H-E-E-T, HEAT. And when it comes to little organizations and stuff, you know, like this, one of the things that's always kind of bothered me about it is we're supposed to believe that shitloads and shitloads of people out there, damn it, they all miss Hal and they want him back, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't help but sort of consign this to the firestorm effect, right? Which is when it was announced that Firestorm was going to was going to appear on The Flash, the TV show The Flash, there was all of this outpouring of support on Facebook, there was all this excitement and everything, and people seemed like really jazzed about it, you know? And I kind of ended up having to call bullshit on some of that in as much as, you know, if you fucking people loved Firestorm that much, why is it that he always ends up with a canceled comic book? How does that keep fucking happening? You know, if you guys love him that much, why aren't you buying his comic? And I kind of have that feeling, that same type of attitude with uh, the people from Heat. I have no ill will toward them. I want to be clear about that. But I don't completely understand, I guess, where they're coming from when it, like this huge boner they had for Hal Jordan. I mean, number one, at least until Jeff Johns came along, I never really saw what the hype was all about with Hal Jordan. I mean, he always seemed sort of like, uh, like a, the, he was the consummate super friend of me. I mean, he was sort of a cardboard cutout. There's no there there, you know? And then as now, I just really don't get the pre Jeff Johns, Hal Jordan, and just this weird fucked up love that people seem to have for this in my opinion, kind of a non-character. Now, I exempt the the post-Jeff Johns version of Hal Jordan from all of that in as much as, again, you can love or hate the fact that Jeff Johns brought Hal back from the dead 
and then single-handedly pretty much rehabilitated his character. But what you cannot take away from him is that he gave Hal an actual character. Before, he was just, like I say, sort of a cardboard cutout. But under, under Jeff Johns' leadership, under his stewardship, I would almost want to compare Hal Jordan to this sort of smiling, roguish, kind of Han Solo type of figure. You know, he always knew, he had a little bit more of a sense of duty than I always associated with, with uh, Han Solo. You know, Hal Jordan is Green Lantern par excellence. He is, you know, recognized as being the greatest Green Lantern, and there is a reason for that, because, you know, he fucking, he really has earned that. But at the same time, you know, he's he's a little bit of a commitment phobe. He's a little bit of a womanizer. He's a little bit of a drinker, you know, and basically what, because I, 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 on the one hand, I don't want to reduce it and make it sound like, you know, all Jeff Johns really did was turn Hal Jordan into a little bit of a pussy hound. I mean, there is an element of that. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much more to it than that. And again, I would almost want to com- compare him in a weird kind of a way, sort of like an amalgam of Han Solo with maybe a little bit of Captain Kirk thrown in for good measure. And oddly enough, the original prototypical Captain Kirk Green Lantern character, it's almost more like he's become more of like Captain Sisko now. You know, he's just more of a, just a, just a tough guy, you know, not to be fucked with. And he doesn't mind breaking protocol once in a while, but, you know, he's still a little bit more by the rules now than he was before. And so it does kind of speak a little bit to the, I guess, the sort of shifts and changes that these characters have undergone over the decades. But anyway, my point is, not to ramble here, but my point is, you know, I'm not shitting on Hal's Emerald Enforcement Team Heat. I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on them or anything, but I really don't understand their obsession with the pre-Jeff Johns Hal Jordan. That's, that's really all I'm saying here. It just, I don't know. It, it just, it doesn't scan for me is, is really what I'm saying. So that I think is pretty much that, at least as far as Emerald Twilight's concerned. Now, it's kind of, it, now's probably a good time to kind of have a little bit of a mea culpa, all right? Basically, this is the end as a miniseries that, like I said, is supposed to be all about that trend that DC Comics went through in the 90s where they replaced their main hero with somebody else permanently or temporarily, you know, through death or whatever else, paralysis or just whatever it was going to be. And... I was going to talk about Doomsday, Nightfall, Terminal Velocity, Emerald Twilight, and The Contest. Now, as it happens, I'm not going to be talking about The Contest, at least not next week. Next week's episode is what I'm calling the IOU episode, and I'll get more into that next week. Suffice it to say that I wanted to record uh, This Is The End, Part 5, concerning the contest, you know, Wonder Woman, the contest. I wanted to record that with Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix. And through no fault of Gene's and through no fault of mine, he and I were just not able to get together to schedule anything. And what I've decided is I'm not going to record that episode unless, unless Gene can join in with me. You know, I like Gene. He's a great guy. I promised him that he and I were going to talk about Wonder Woman, the contest at some point. And by golly, that's what we're going to do. So 
Um, I'm not criticizing Gene. I wouldn't, I, in fact, I would not criticize Gene. He's a nice guy. He's a hell of a nice guy. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not smack talking the guy. I'm just saying that, you know what? Life stuff happens sometimes and it's happened to him. It's happened to me. And so because of that, you know, he and I were not able to, you know, we weren't able to get together and, uh, talk about Wonder Woman, the contest. So next week is going to be the IOU episode of Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm going to be talking about something else entirely. And at the time that you guys are hearing this, I'll have already posted a graphic, you know, for the artwork for um, next week's episode. So you may have already figured out what next week's episode is all about. And if you have, let me know, because I buried a clue into that, uh, into that graphic. So if you're listening to this now, you can go to the Facebook group and uh, for Trenis Magnus Punches Reality and... Uh, just see for yourself, you know, see if you can figure out based on that graphic for the uh, Tuesday, November the 24th, 2015 episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, what my subject matter is going to be. And uh, if you figured it out, let me know. So that I think is pretty much that for, for this week. So, and again, if you guys take nothing else away from this, I just want to be clear. I'm not criticizing Gene Hendricks. I would not criticize Gene Hendricks. He simply wasn't able to get his schedule to work with my schedule, and then I couldn't get my schedule to work with his schedule. It's nobody's fault. Nobody's at fault. It's it's just fucking, it's just, it's one of those things. It happens. So, you know, don't, I don't want anyone to think like I'm mad or something like that at, at uh, Gene, because believe me, I'm not. It's just shit happens. But I've decided that, you know what, I gave the guy my word. I'm not going to record that episode unless I've got him in on the action to record with me. I want to. I want to hear his thoughts. I, because I like Gene. I like his style. I like his mind. I. I just like the way that he that he handles his podcasting. So that's one of the main reasons why I really want him to be part of the uh, part of the contest episode. So um, that is pretty much it for me this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. 
but all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content or darknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Darkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spaway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the backroll spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook 
just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>